Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. <laughs> My name is Frank. I am the, uh, the Mayfair Road Campus Pastor. I'm also one of your teaching pastors. It's my pleasure to be here today. And um, there are some passages of Scripture that um, when I think about them, I associate them with certain seasons of my life or certain settings. And when I think about the armor of God, it automatically takes me back to kids' church. So I don't know if you had the opportunity to either grow up, grow up in a kids' church, like go to the kids' ministry, or if you served in a kids' ministry. But um, when I think of the armor of God, I just think of these Bible lessons where there's like a felt board and there's like a little man on the felt board and the teacher's saying, what is this? Oh, that is his sword. And you put it on the person and, and you go through each piece of the armor of God. I feel like almost all the sermons and messages I hear or think about when it comes to the armor of God um, revolve around kids' church, kids' lessons, or certain songs singing about the armor of God and things like that. Um, there's even costumes that you could buy for kids that, um, that you could, your kids could wear for Halloween. In fact, uh, we have some armor here at the church that I got Fozzie, uh, Pastor Caleb's, our worship leader's son. I put it on him, and I thought it was super adorable. And then I wanted to try it on myself, so I put it on myself, and it, it didn't quite fit the same. Um, it looks, the, the breastplate looks more like a bib. But it's whatever. You know, I still look pretty adorable as well. So um, though the costume is not for all ages, the armor of God is for all ages. And if you want to survive the schemes of the devil, you need to suit up because the battle is real. So we're in Ephesians chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there. And while you're turning there, I wanted to remind you of the outline of the book of Ephesians that I gave you last week, but give you some more detail. So the book of Ephesians is separated into two sections. There's a doctrinal and a practical section. But in the doctrinal section, there are some major themes I want to highlight. So in chapter 1, God chooses a people for himself. In chapter 2, he saves those people. Later in chapter 2, God makes those people a family. And in chapter 3, God gets glory from those people. Then in chapter 4, verse 1, he uses this very important word, the word, therefore, and whenever, here's a Bible study tip, whenever you're reading your Bible and you see the word therefore, you should ask yourself why that therefore is therefore. Does that make sense? Why is that therefore therefore? And so because of all the amazing things God has done, God saved the people for himself, rescued these people, made them a family, all these type of things, therefore, the practical side, we should live unified lives with one another as God's people. Therefore, we should live in contrast to those who do not know the Lord as holy people. Therefore, we should live uniquely towards one another in love, right? Paul is painting this amazing picture of what the, this beautiful theological, theologically dense uh, first three chapters of all the things that God has done. Because of that, we should live in this super ideal Christian community that is united, holy, and loving one another. And then we get to chapter 6, and then uh, uh, Paul pulls the e-brake and says, but hold on, we got to suit up. Because we are in a war, and this war 
is serious and we have to fight. So we're in chapter 6 and we're going to start in verse 10 and we're going to read about this war, this battle that you and I are all involved in. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There, these three verses, I believe, are some of the most ignored verses in America. Because though we say we believe the devil is real, we don't live like we do. We don't live like we're in a wartime reality. We live as if we're living in peace. And the reason why I say this is some of the most ignored verses in America because um, we as a church, both Epicos Church and the church at large, suffer greatly from a lack of prayer. We, we, we suffer from prayerlessness and a laziness when it comes to reading God's word. We don't pray enough. We don't read God's word enough to demonstrate that we believe our battle is against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces. When we talk about spiritual warfare or the spiritual realm, I, I think we often treat it like cryptocurrency. Like, we know it's a thing, people try to tell us about it, but we ignore it because we don't think it affects us. Does that make sense? We, when we talk about spiritual warfare, we think that this is a thing for missionaries to deal with. That this is a problem in Africa or South America, but not here. Or we think of the pictures of Hollywood, like the movie The Exorcist, where there's someone floating with their head spinning and projectile green vomit coming out of their mouth. But last week, we learned that, 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 that we live in a world that is governed by the devil, and we have a flesh that is predisposed to rebel against God. Because of that, the devil has schemes. Another word for schemes is methods or, or, or strategies. So the devil has certain methods and strategies when it comes to you and I. And so cartoons have kind of made us believe that Satan is this evil opposite version of God, but that is not true. Satan is an angel created by God, that chose to rebel against God, and when he got kicked out of heaven, he took with him a third of all the angels who rebelled with him. And so he is not all-knowing, he's not omnipresent, he's not everywhere all the time, but he has had thousands of years to study humanity, to know exactly how to manipulate us and to deceive us. Satan's number one goal is for you to give God as little glory as possible. And because of that, he has strategies to cause you to doubt God and to not take your faith seriously. So when we talk about the schemes of the devil, like I said, oftentimes we, our mind goes to horror movies um, that are really spooky, that talk about demon possession and really kind of scary stuff. And I want to be clear, I don't want to minimize that. Some of the wild demonic stuff that you hear about is found in Scripture. And so I give that a certain category. I want to call those the extraordinary demonic. The extraordinary demonic are the, script, are, are, are the supernatural and sometimes terrifying events that we see in Scripture that are attributed to demonic things. So some examples of that in Scripture are torment, physical injury, counterfeit miracles, accusations, and false spirits. Those are real things that happen in Scripture that I don't want to kind of um, censor or nullify. However, there's a type of demonic activity 
that we see probably more pervasive in the New Testament, that I think is more common in our time than we give it credit to, and that's what I call ordinary demonic. The ordinary demonic is the everyday sinful activities that are associated with the demonic in Scripture. And so here are some of the things Scripture tells us is demonic or it can be kind of some of the schemes that the devil throws at us when it comes to us giving God, giving God a little glory. Scripture talks about unforgiving bitterness and anger. Scripture talks about false religion, false teaching. The Bible says that gossip and busybodying is demonic. Scripture says that lying is demonic and that sexual sins can come from a demonic place. In the early church, there were some wild, demonic, supernatural stuff, casting out demons. We see that in the book of Acts and in other places. However, what we see most often in the New Testament and in our world today is the ordinary demonic that shows up in the bitterness, in the gossiping, in the lying, and in our broken sexuality. Every day, you and I are facing demonic activity in the ordinary sins around us. And we don't realize that this is a battle that we are waging war with every single day as Christians. Paul doesn't want you to be so naive. You and I, at this very moment, are in a supernatural war whether you like it or not. And because of that, Paul calls us that we need to be strong in this fight. But this isn't like, get down and give me 50 push-ups kind of strong. Because you are not strong enough against these demonic forces. The Bible says that we need what verse 10 says, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Because you need God's strength to fight the supernatural battle. And not just God's strength, but you need God's armor. So Paul lays out in the following verses the armor of God. And pay close attention because as we talk about the armor of God, it's associated, it's connected to the different kind of schemes and lies and attacks the enemy has on us. So let's start in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through the armor of God looking at this illustration of a guy who I found on Instagram. His Instagram handle is Sketchy Sermons. And he has drawn this really cool illustration of the armor of God. And if you wanted to uh, later go to the hub.epicus.org, you can uh, get this as a poster or you can follow him on Instagram at Sketchy Sermons. But Paul is in prison and, and, and while he's in Rome, he's in prison. And while he's in Rome, in prison, writing this letter to the church of Ephesus, he's looking at these soldiers probably, and he's looking at the different pieces of armor. And as he's meditating, thinking about how can I encourage the church of Ephesus to be ready and take seriously the spiritual battle that they're in, he's using the pieces of armor on the Roman soldier as examples of illustrations to uh, how they should prepare themselves. Meanwhile, Paul is drawing to his deep knowledge of the Old Testament, of all the places where the Lord has 
called himself a warrior or a soldier and has described his work in this world of putting on different pieces of armor. So Paul uses both of those things and puts them together in this warning in chapter 6. But I want to be clear about something before we continue. When we talk about this six pieces of armor, remember it's an illustration. I'm not asking you, Paul is not asking you to like manifest this like invisible armor on your body to fight this war. What, we're, what he's asking us is he's describing the types of attitudes and habits we must maintain as we thwart the enemy's schemes. You guys follow me? These are attitudes and habits that we should have. There are six pieces of armor, and with every single piece of armor, I have a diagnostic question for you, to, for you to examine in your own heart, are you truly prepared for this battle that we're in right now? The first piece of armor is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Underneath the armor of a soldier is a long tunic. Picture a giant Snuggie, all right? <laughs> that's kind of like the tunic that's under the soldier's um, 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 armor. And so that tunic by itself would be long and flowy, and it wouldn't be very great for any kind of physical activity. And so the belt would serve two purposes. The first purpose is to kind of keep everything kind of nice and snug and against your body. They would take the excess of the tunic and put it up and kind of roll it into the belt so that way they have full flexibility to do whatever they need. It would kind of keep everything nice and tight to your body. And the second purpose would be to be able to hold any daggers or swords or whatever weapons they bring into the battle. The verb translated having fastened literally means to gird or prepare yourself. So, so I picture like an athlete, like retightening his shoelaces or biting down on his mouth guard or tightening up his straps on his pads. Um, fastening the belt of truth is about fortifying yourself, showing that you are prepared for battle. And again, Paul is going back to Isaiah 11 where God has described himself as putting on a, 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 bre- a, a belt, which is the righteousness that shall be the belt around his waist. And so the belt being about the truth is fitting because Satan is a liar. Uh, Jesus himself said this in John 8, 44. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. From the first time we meet the devil, he is lying. He is deceiving Adam and Eve. And ever since then, he's been in a constant campaign to manipulate and lie to all of humanity so that they don't see God as good. Paul is saying that without without clinching ourselves tightly to the truth, all of the armor that we can try to put on will just cling and fall to the ground. It, it won't be able to be held up. Satan is an accomplished philosopher, theologian, and psychologist and has had thousands of years of just studying humanity. And so he knows how to twist the truth. He knows how to manipulate. But even more so, we all live in a world right now that sees truth as subjective. And so we all live in a world that wants to redefine words where our feelings are triumphing over reality. And so with all those things at play, my question for you as a Christian, my first diagnostic question is this. Are you fortifying your soul with truth? Are you fortifying your soul with truth? When I talk about truth, I am talking about the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word. When it comes to God's word, the devil wants you to do two things. The devil wants you to doubt God's word 
and the devil wants you to neglect God's word. Sometimes um, I'll, I'll talk to, to other Christians, and I'll hear them say this sentence, and it kind of makes me, like, cringe and gets nervous. The, the sentence, they'll start with this. They'll say, I know what the Bible says, but. And whatever comes after that but is always terrifying to me. Because typically when, when Christians say that, I know what the Bible says, but what they're going to do is either justify some sin they want to do or they're trying to find a reason to ignore one of God's commands. Both of those things come from a place of doubt and neglect to God's word. A truthful life is never an accident. A truthful life is never an accident. If you are struggling to discern uh, the lies that the devil is throwing at you, it's time to tighten your belt to fortify yourself with truth. We must fill ourselves with the truth of God's word and then consciously submit to it so we can instinctively always know the truth when the lies come at us. And when we are clinging closely to the truth, we can thwart the enemy's plans in our lives. So the first one is the, um, the belt of truth. The second thing is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. This piece of armor covers all your vital organs. In the, in the battle, when there's daggers and arrows coming at you, your, your, your vital organs are protected because it's covered by this breastplate. And God himself wears the righteousness as a breastplate in Isaiah 59, 17, where he can enact his righteous justice in this world. The armor of God is very much God's own armor put on us as Christians. So the breastplate of righteousness, that word, that word righteousness has to do with right living. Another way you can put it, it has to do with personal holiness. The Bible says that no one is righteous on their own, but God in Christ gives us his own righteousness. And when you receive God's righteousness through faith in Jesus, you will begin to develop the righteous character of God in your life. The way you become more holy in this life is when you imitate God's holy character in your own life. Ephesians 5.1 said, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. The breastplate that protects you from the assaults of the enemy is the imitation of God's righteous character in your life. So here's my question for you. How are you cultivating God's righteousness in your life? How are you cultivating God's righteousness in your life? Do you, do you have people in your life that check you on your sins and that call you to holiness? When you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life when you're sinning, do you buck up against it? Or do you heed his warnings? Cultivating righteousness is the everyday process of repenting and turning away from your sins and pursuing holiness. Don't get confused what I'm saying right now, though. I'm not saying that we must be perfect, okay? The breastplate of righteousness is not for perfect people. It's for repentant people. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness is imitating God's righteous character in your life. Because Satan would love nothing more than to ruin your own holiness to cause you to dull you into your own sin. The righteousness is, is about imitating God's righteous character in your life. The second piece of armor are the shoes on your feet having put on the readiness of given by the gospel of peace. It's the, shoe, the, the sandals of peace, the shoes of peace. So 
Um, Isaiah 52, 7, this is describing God. It says, how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace. These shoes that the Roman soldiers would wear, think more like cleats than shoes because they had on the bottom of the shoe like traction so that way when you plant your feet in the ground you're like stable and you're not going to fall over or go anywhere. The, the peace that, that Paul is describing here is, is, is kind of twofold. One side of it is peace with God and the other side of it is peace, the peace of God. Peace with God and peace of God. The way you get peace with God is when you put your faith in Jesus. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, remember uh, last week in Ephesians 2, we talked about how we were children of wrath before Jesus. Or another way to put it is that we were uh, deserving of God's wrath before Jesus. But when you put your faith in Christ, you are no longer children of wrath because Jesus absorbs and take all the wrath, takes all the wrath for you because he takes your sin from you. And we become children of God. So because of what Jesus has done, we get to have peace with God. God through Jesus. But the other kind of peace that we can receive is the peace of God. And this is important because I think a lot of us are struggling with this right now. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There is a type of peace that you can have in this world that guards your heart and your mind. A type of peace that makes no sense in this world because this is a peace that you cannot find in this world because it's a peace that comes from heaven. So you can have a type of peace in this world, in this anxiety-ridden world that makes no sense to anyone else. And you can have access to the peace of God, as Paul says, through prayer and, and thanksgiving to God. Because you have peace with God and you have the peace of God, you can stand tall, you can lock in and be immovable in the battle. Notice it, he's not saying that we are to um, try to take ground or retreat, but Paul is saying four times that we are to stand in this battle. But the only way we can stand tall in this battle is when we have the peace of God. So my question for you is this, do you have the peace of God? The supernatural peace of God that surpasses all understanding is yours because of Jesus. But so many of us are getting our behinds whooped in battle because we don't have peace. Instead of peace, we've allowed worry and anxiety to paralyze us. There's a, there's a quote I heard from someone else, I don't know who said it, but he said, worry is a prayer that you pray to yourself instead of to God. Worry is a prayer that you pray to yourself instead of God. You allow your fears to go on loop in your head over and over again, and that prayer ends on itself because you can't do anything about it. And Satan cannot take away your salvation, but Satan can lead you to be frozen in your fears, useless for God. And so the peace that you need is a result of prayer and thanksgiving to God. The way you can be immovable in battle and stand tall in this war is when you have the peace of God in your life. Pastor Jacob next week is going to talk about prayer 
And, and so we'll hear more about prayer next week. But, but for our needs, what, what you, when, the way you receive the peace of God is when you have long, faithful prayers with thanksgiving to God every single day. The next piece of armor that he brings up is the shield of faith. The shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The Roman shield would, was huge. It was like four feet tall, two and a half feet wide, and it kind of bowed at the end, and so it would be able to cover your sides. It can cover your entire body if you kind of like scrunch up a little bit. They would soak these shields in water because their enemies would often have these bows, these arrows that were like on fire, but when the arrows hit your shield because it was wet, it would be extinguished. The fiery darts that Paul is saying here are the lies of the devil. And the shield is our confidence in who God is and what God has done. And so there are two types of lies that Satan loves to spread. The, 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 they're lies to make you doubt and lies to make you feel accused. Lies that make you doubt sound like this. Are you really happy? Like, is this all really worth it? Don't you find it unfair that some people have what you want but you don't have that? Because God hasn't given it to you? Do you really think God has your best interest at heart? Because it doesn't feel that way. Those are lies that doubt. Lies that make you feel accused sound like this. You're not good enough. You are the worst Christian around. That thought you just had is weird and gross. No Christian ever thinks the way you think. Do you really think God loves you after all the stuff you've done? These are the lies the devil loves to spread. Have you heard these lies before? The question I want to ask you, the question I want you to ask yourself is, where are you most likely to not believe in God? Where are you most likely to not believe in God? Because that is exactly the pressure point Satan is going to target. What shields believers is the confidence and trust in God. When you allow the enemy to shake your trust in him, you expose yourself to his attack. This is why we at Epicos, we repeat the gospel over and over and over again. If it's annoying, good, we're doing our job here. Because when you remind yourselves of the gospel, it strengthens your confidence in God. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if Jesus died for us while we were still at our worst, if God loved us in spite of us when we were still at our worst, why do we think that now as children of God that he's going to abandon his own children? It doesn't make sense. Also, uh, if we are truly saved by grace through faith alone and not by works, how come we start allowing the lies that now currently my works, whether good or bad, may cause me to lose this great salvation? This is why we repeat the gospel over and over again, to fortify your confidence in who he is and what he has done. That is the shield. The next piece of armor is the helmet of salvation. Again, Paul is taking Old Testament imagery here. He says in Isaiah 59, 17, he puts on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. But Paul uses this illustration actually somewhere else in the New Testament that's really important. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, Paul says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope, of salvation. So the helmet of salvation is rooted in our hope of our salvation. 
I don't know how many, like, how many of you have been in a situation where you had to wear a helmet, but there's something that happens when you put on a helmet that, that makes you feel different. When I was a youth pastor, uh, I, I planned this event where I would take my students to go paintballing. And I was really excited because I'd never gone paintballing before because that's a fun activity for the rich. All right? So I was like, I'm going to do this with a youth event. So we all went paintballing, and I was so excited to go paintballing. When I got there, they sat us down for like a 30-minute lecture about how dangerous paintballing is. And it was like really concerning because they said that like these paintballs are coming at you so fast that they can literally like take your eye out. And I was like, this is terrifying, and I'm responsible for all these minors. Why do we do this here? And then they said, but put this helmet on, and you'll be fine. The paintball will hit your face, and it won't hurt you at all. And the moment I put that helmet on, I thought I was in Call of Duty. Like, I was a different person. I was out there running, like being a maniac. I was a menace on the field. And I would go in the middle of the field, and the kids would just bah, 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 light me up. Like, they were like purposely aiming for my head, and I didn't care because I didn't feel it. I was like, this is awesome! And I, I was going wild because when I put that helmet on, it gave me boldness because I knew these paintballs couldn't hurt me. When you have confidence that your salvation is secured in Jesus, sealed unto the day of glory, it should cause a little boldness in you. The same attitude that Paul had when he said to live is Christ and to die is gain should be yours as well. Jesus has taken away the, the sting of death, and, and now death is just a doorway into eternity. And when you are not afraid of death, you are untouchable. What could you tell Paul? Paul, if you don't stop sharing the gospel, we're going to arrest you. Okay, cool. Well, I'll just some, sing some worship songs and everyone will get saved. Well, Paul, if you don't stop sharing the gospel, we're going to beat you up. Okay, well, if I suffer, it'll just make me more like Jesus. And when everyone else hears it, they're going to get saved. Well, Paul, if you don't stop doing this, if you don't stop sharing the gospel, we're going to kill you. Well, if you kill me, I get to be in the presence of my God and, fear, and, and I won't experience any more pain or suffering. So tell me, where's the bad side of this? This is what happens when you're not afraid of death. Whether you live or die in Jesus, there's no bad side to that coin. There is a boldness that you should have because we have confidence in our salvation. So my question for you is, do you have confidence in your salvation? Do you have confidence in your salvation? If you don't, please fill out an orange card. Talk to your small group leader. Reach out to your campus pastor. There should be no insecurities when it comes to your salvation if you have truly put your faith in Jesus. Your security in Jesus should cause you to be bold in this battle because you know nothing Satan can do can take away the hope that you have in Jesus. The last piece of armor is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but whoever it is seems to agree with Paul that the only offensive weapon we have and the only offensive weapon that we need when it comes to the armor of God is the sword which is provided by the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Uh, I, I want to cast a little bit of vision here for you to explain some things of why we do the things we do here at Epicos. We are a church that preaches the Word of God. 
We are a church that, that doesn't want to share my own opinions or kind of feel-good messages. We want to preach the Word of God. Right now we're going through this series where we're going through the overview of the New Testament because our hope is that as you see all the themes of the New Testament and how they're connected together, you can have greater confidence when you read your New Testament Bible and read through the passage, you understand in a high level what all this stuff is. Then in the fall of this year, we're going to be in the book of Colossians. And we're going to start in Colossians 1.1 and go to the end of the book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, till we finish that book. And then the reason why right now, I'm looking through the camera, the reason why we stream this to Mayfair Road, to the east side, and to Sherman Park is because we truly want to be one church in multiple locations. If you call Epicos your home, we want everybody, no matter where you are, to hear one unified message from God's Word. And if we're truly one church in multiple locations, we want to make sure we have one unified message for all four locations. And so the beauty of utilizing this type of technology is that someone from West Dallas could be in a small group with someone from Mayfair Road, Sherman Park, and the east side. And as all of you come together from different locations and different campuses, you can gather together, you can open up to the same passage, reflect on the same message, and study the same word of God. The reason why we care so much about God's word and think strategically about how we preach it and, and how we carefully handle this book is because this is a gift from God. We have a God that desires to be known, who reveals himself, and he does that through the word of God. And so whoever is on this stage, we want to make sure is carefully going through the text. I don't know if you know this, every Thursday before the Sunday sermon, whoever's preaching has to sit, stand in this empty room with five pastors. I preach this sermon, and then they grill me. And they say, this is where, this sucked, this was terrible. I don't know what you just said. You kind of mumbled through that one. And they tell us to help us to make sure that whatever we say on Sunday morning is clearly what we want God's word for you to hear today. Does that make sense? God's word is something that we want to cherish and value and love. We take it seriously. Hear me when I say this. God's word reveals God's mind. Therefore, if you fill and saturate your heart with his word, sin and temptation will not dominate you because God's mind cannot be subject to sin. So my question for you is, are you filling your heart with God's word? Listen, we can talk about the Bible. I'm not afraid of any questions you have. We can talk about, chop it up about, you know, can we trust God's word today? If you want to ask me, what's the best translation of the Bible you should read? I will tell you very simply, whatever translation that you'll read, right? You want to ask me, where should I start in my Bible? My first suggestion is opening your Bible, right? Start in the Gospel of John. We can talk about other places to read. All these kind of questions about scripture, if you go to the hub.epicus.org, there's a ton of resources there. But be in God's word. Study it, meditate on it, memorize it, but most importantly, read it. There are six pieces of armor, but God has one more thing that believers must do in order to succeed in this battle. Verse 18. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. Paul wraps up this section saying that you need to pray. Are you, are you ready to fight? Great, you should pray. Are, are, oh, you got the full armor of God already on? Great, you should pray. You're ready to be on the field and punch demons in the throat? Awesome, you should pray. 
There is not a moment in your life where you shouldn't be praying. Prayer is the place where we most exemplify being strong in the Lord rather than being strong in ourselves. Prayer is your acknowledgement of God's sovereign control in your life. Prayer is humbly accepting and trusting God's rule and reign in your life. Those who are strong in the Lord and not in themselves will find themselves praying at all times, in all places, instinctively. We must pray. As always, I got resources over at thehub.epicus.org on everything we talked about. And if you find a question there that you don't have answered on that webpage, uh, feel free to re- fill out a connect card because we want to help you be prepared for this battle. Colossians 2.15 tells us that Jesus has already defeated Satan when he resurrected on the cross, off the cross. But hear me out. Defeated enemies can still throw fiery darts. And so God has already won the battle for us, but since you and I live in a world that's governed by the devil and we have a flesh that has a propensity to rebel against God, God takes off his battle-tested armor and he puts it on us. And he tells us that if we stand firm with the full armor of God on us, that we will make it to the end. And the blows from the devil will not hurt you. So friends, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace, your mercy, your compassion towards us. And Lord, forgive us when we have allowed to only think of the spiritual realm as these extremes and not acknowledge the fact that we are surrounded in a battle right now. And in the everyday ordinary sins that we see present around us is the influence of Satan and his demons, Lord. I just pray, Lord, that you didn't leave us here to fight this battle alone. You've given us your armor to put on so that we can defeat this enemy. I pray, Lord, that as we wake up tomorrow morning or even after we leave this place, Lord, that we meditate on these different attitudes, these different habits that we ought to have so that we are not naive to the schemes of the devil, that we can um, continue to grow in our holiness towards you. And I thank you, Lord, because of what Jesus has done, being, by us being sealed in the Holy Spirit, we know that we will make it on the other end in glory one day. Lord, we love you and we praise you. So that's them I pray. Amen.